my goodness, that worship song is so beautiful, is it not? And what a prayer, uh, almost a childlike prayer. God, we don't want to lose our wonder. It's a gift from God to wonder, is it not? Uh, We're talking about imagination these days. God gives us the capacity to think, to remember, to analyze, to compare so many truly miraculous mental capacities, intellectual capacities, the ability to read, the, re- the ability to repeat back, the, 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 and the ability to imagine and think beyond ourselves. I think it's uh, very obvious to us that God has given the human race a superior intelligence over animals. I don't know that animals imagine. If they did, we wouldn't know it. <laughs> but, it but nothing like us, the Da Vinci's and the Ford's and the Steve Jobs and those who have dreamed major uh, inventions and creations and all of those things is, is it all tied back to a creator who gives us the capacity to do so. There has not been one single visionary in history who has not imagined something great that did not face obstacles. So as we talk about this beautiful gift of imagination and dreaming and envisioning together, we would be remiss if we did not include this part of the conversation, that when we dream and when we were asking God for something large, we understand that there will be hindrances and and obstacles and hurdles. And it's not so much that we want to focus on that, but how do we get around it? Because every single path of value will be met with obstacles. We begin today with a quote from a guy who was a, a congressman many, many years ago, Frank Clark. And, and uh, the quote reads like this, if you find a path with no obstacles, it probably doesn't lead anywhere. In other words, Those paths that have no hindrances, no hurdles, no challenges probably are easy. Great roads of uh, of vision are always met with it. Let's think in in the scripture for a moment. When God called Moses to go to a land filled and flowing with milk and honey, think about how many challenges and obstacles he met along the way. Think about David, a young man that God anointed king and endorsed as king and and all the obstacles and the challenges and the hardships that he faced. Think about Abraham and when God said, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. Like, oh, that's just wonderful. Let's just stick with that. But that vision really did not come to be without great challenges. It's not that challenges will be part of a dream. We know that. It's what we do with the challenges. It's what we do with the obstacles. Perhaps you have a private dream, a personal dream. I'm hoping that that, that, that personal dream is also part of a collective dream because the New Testament is written to a collective group of people, not just solo commando, not mavericks, but in the New Testament, uh, every single letter is addressed to a collective group. The church at Corinth, uh, the Corinthian church, the church at Corinth, the Galatian church, the the uh, the Thessalonian church—they're all local bodies that God said, "I want to tap you collectively to do something together." We spoke about it last week, and as we meet our own set of, of, of obstacles, it really 
should not surprise us, but again, it is what we do with those obstacles because it is entirely possible to become preoccupied with those obstacles to the degree that we can't get to the dream. I've been reading for whatever reason a lot about the Wright brothers. And December 17, 1903, when that aircraft finally got off uh, the beaches in North Carolina in air, it must have been a moment. It was a dream come true. They had, they had done much study and much investment into that dream, 1903, the end of 1903. What they didn't see is what often visionaries can't see, the impact that they would make years later. Just think about it. In 1903, not too many years later, we, along with many other countries, would head into World War I. And think of the impact of aircraft in, in World War I. And because of what they were doing on that beach that day and other inventors around the world, they weren't the only ones. They had no idea how God would use what they, they did for good and for others would use for bad. This is what happens in our life. It's exactly the story that Scott shared this morning. In 2008, probably felt like his, end was, his life was coming to an end, had no idea that nearly a decade later that God was going to use something terrible in his life to help someone else out. This is the life of a follower of God. We cannot always explain the present, but God is always at work, not only in the present, but in the future. This is how God works. So the Wright brothers flew that first plane in 1903. And you can imagine that whenever a great invention is made, there are those that come along that try to steal it. They're dream killers. And those are, th those are the people that try to ruin something great. And what happened is that they became faced with many obstacles in the courtroom, the Wright brothers. And unfortunately, instead of allowing those obstacles to become hurdles to be overcome, they became preoccupied with those legal battles of, uh, against their own patents and their own, the ownership of what they had invented. They became so, in, so uh, uh, embodied in that, that legal, those legal arguments that it, that it hindered the design uh, and their creativity and their imagination to the point that by the time we reached World War I, what they could have played into was diminished. Watch this. Uh, if you look on the screen, some historic evidence, the right's preoccupation with the legal issue, not the legal issue, not the obstacle, but their preoccupation with the obstacle. The right's preoccupation with a legal issue hindered their development of new aircraft designs. And by 1910, Wright aircraft were inferior to those made by other firms in Europe. Indeed, aviation development in the U.S. was suppressed to such an extent that when the country entered World War I, no acceptable American-designed aircraft were available and U.S. forces were compelled to use French machines. Look what happens to a dream. When we don't face the obstacles in such a way that we keep our eyes on the dream, but we become preoccupied with the obstacle. So today's sermon title could be this, Dream Busters and How to Overcome Them. Because any dream will have that attempt, that challenge that wants to just break it up. And I do believe that we're going to, as we look at some of these challenges, that we'll face 
collectively and that you'll face personally, I believe that God also offers a solution, and that's the key to the whole conversation. So let's take a look at some of these dream busters, dream killers, whatever you want to want to call them. Here's the first one, and I'm sure that you'll recognize most of these. But what kills a dream? Here's the first one on the top of the list. I would say it's the blinding nature of the natural. The blinding nature of the natural. What do I mean by that? Whatever that thing is, whether it's a legal battle or whether it's a, you're trying to raise funds or you're going to try to do something and get a home or a business or whatever that thing is, that thing that's right in front of you, that's the natural, the thing that you can see and touch and feel. It's right there. It's visible. It's what I'm referring to as the natural. There's a blinding effect of the natural in such a way that it becomes so looming and so large that we would say it's the trees and we can't see the forest. We've lost sight of the dream because of that thing right there in front of us. I'm sure you, you can relate to that. There's a short list of, uh, that, I've, that has, comes out of the this, this scripture today. Look at how the obstacle, look at, at these giants in the faith, Abraham, Moses, and on. Look at these giants in the faith that how the blinding nature of the natural, the thing in front of them, overcame their dream. Watch this. So we begin in Genesis chapter 15. In Genesis chapter 15, God is having a, a conversation with a man called Abram. We know him as Abraham. That was his first name, Abram. God sometimes in the scripture would change the names of men and women in the, in to, as they uh, endeavored on a new chapter. God would give them a new beginning, change their name. So Abram, or Abraham, was having this conversation with God. Many of you, most of you know the story. He was beyond the capacity biologically to have children. He was childless. He was an older man. And he saw that as an impossibility. When God came to him and said, I'm going to make you, Abraham, a father of many nations, he could not see past his own set of circumstances, which was he had no children, and he was too old biologically to have them in most cases. And, in, and we pick it up in Genesis chapter 15, verse 2. But Abram, this part of the story, his still name is Abram. Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? See, I'm looking around my tent, and you see no, you see no crib? You see no children around my feet? This is what I'm living with, God. This is the thing I'm seeing. These are the trees in my forest. I'm childless. And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. Who's that guy? Well, he's the servant. You're about to see it in, in what he says next. He's, he's the servant. He's like, hey, the only guy that I'm seeing around my tent, there's no, there's no kids, there's no son that's going to inherit what I got. I, here's my faithful servant. His name is Eliezer. I guess you're, you must be referring to him because, see, I can't see past. I can't imagine what you're saying. I can only see the natural. And then verse 3, Abram said, you have given me no children, God, so a servant in my household, he'll be my heir. That's the guy, that's the only thing I'm seeing. You might remember fast forwarding to Moses. Moses is leading people out of uh, uh, Egypt, and he's in the desert and in the wilderness, and they're griping. You know, God was feeding them uh, from heaven with this substance called manna, and it had a sweetness to it, a taste to it, and, a, and it was just a miraculous thing. And he said, God, do you think that really happened? Absolutely. 
because we're talking about the creator of the universe who was creating sustenance for many, many people in an area, terrain that did not bear crops. And so God had to step in and say, let me, let me feed you. Well, like most people, he, they got bored with that. They said, hey, what else you got on the menu? Because we're kind of getting bored with, with the taste of you know, this, this manna. And so we'd like some meat. Is there any? Because we haven't had meat in a while. You know, do you, do you got that on? I don't see that anywhere on the menu. Now, knowing God, because he's so ingenious, that I'm guessing that that, that that manna was nutritionally absolutely complete for them, that he wasn't you know, raining down Captain Crunch or anything. Uh, I'm guessing that it had no steroids in it, no antibiotics, no, no uh, processed food or any of that. I mean, it was a real deal. And I would, I would guess, knowing God, feeding that many people, it had the exact amount of uh, uh, protein and, and, and fiber and all that they needed because it was coming from God. But still, you know, as human beings, like, still not enough, not satisfied. Can you send us any meat? And so now they're, you know, they're banging on Moses' door like, hey, we want something else. And so now we pick it up where Moses is having this conversation with God, and it's obvious that he can't see past the numbers. Like, how in the world are we going to have a a potluck with all these people. Where, you know, where are we going to get meat? Where are we going to get the, you know, the green jello salad that you got to have at a potluck? Where is that coming from? Numbers chapter 11, verse 21. Moses said to God, here I am among 600,000 men on foot. In other words, there's a lot of people. Let me break it down for you. He's only talking about six, he's only talking about the, the, the soldiers, 600,000 soldiers. That doesn't account for the young men that weren't old enough to be a soldier. It's not accounting for the, the men that were too old to be a soldier. It's not accounting for the females in the group. And it's not accounting for the, the children or the teenagers in the group. So when you look at the numbers, roughly the, those that came out of Exodus is estimated at about 2.4 million. We're also told that many people came up with them so, uh, from, from Egypt that were not Israelites, so probably in the crowd... The estimate from scholars says that there were about, are you ready? Three million people. You see, Moses could not look beyond three million people. These, people. these three million people are asking me for food. God, that's impossible. I'm blinded by the natural. Moses said, here I am among 600,000 men on foot, three million people. And you say, God, I will give them meat to eat for a whole month. Man, I'd love to believe that dream, God. But would they even have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if, we, uh, if all the fish in the sea were caught? I mean, I'm looking around. Look, I, I look at the cattle. My, this, probably, this would feed about a third of them. And if we went to the sea and we fished out all the fish in the sea, and all I'm looking at is real numbers, God, and see, I can't see past the trees in order to see the dream of your forest. Are you following you see, we, we say, hey, you can't see the past the nose on your face. This is the nose on Moses' face. It reminds me when the disciples were supposed to feed thousands with five pieces of bread and, and uh, two pieces of fish. Five, we say the feeding of the 5,000, but if you read the story closely, again, it's, you have to understand how the Bible counts. It's 5,000 men, the story says. That means there were probably 5,000 women, uh, and then there were probably five to 10,000 uh, uh, children, so the feeding of the 5,000 is really the feeding of the 15 to 20,000. And it's why the disciples looked at it and says, hey, we have here only. We have here only. 
See, this is the blinding nature of the natural. This is, this is all I can see right now. We have only five loaves and bread and two fish. And then Philip comes along in John 6, verse 7. Philip comes along and says, hey, I've been, I've been calculating over here how much it's going to cost us to feed 15 to 20,000 people. He must have been a pastor. Uh, we always like, okay, how much, how much is this church dinner going to cost us here? You know, I've got to get a budget for it. Philip says, eight months' wages. I've been over here calculating the natural, God. Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of us to have even one bite. See, I've calculated all these things. Sometimes God gives a person a dream and what happens, like, oh, how are we going to do this? How are we going to pay for it? How are we going to see it? How are we going to make it there? Blah, blah, blah. And all those details are so important, but sometimes they become a blinding effect to move from A to B. Make sense? One time I was uh, living in Boston. I was a student there going to college there, and uh, there was a, 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 a snow blizzard. My friend and I decided to drive anyway, uh, and uh, in three in the morning, we were traveling from Boston down to Virginia to go home. We were the only idiots on the interstate at three in the morning. And I mean, it was snowing cats and dogs. It was like big, thick flakes coming down. I mean, and truly, we were the only people out on the interstate. It was, it was horrible. And we had our lights on. Maybe some of you have had this experience before. We couldn't see 12 inches in front of our car because our spotlights were hitting the snow, you know, were hitting the, the falling snow, and you, literally you couldn't see. One of us had the brilliant idea of, hey, let's cut our lights off. What, could, what bad could happen, right? <laughs> but as it turned out, whoever had the idea, it was a great idea. We weren't going to get hit. There was nobody out there that had a half a brain, and we were the only, truly the only ones. And as soon as we cut that, that light off, the blinding snow stopped, and we could see clearly for a long, long distance. Sometimes it's those things. It's not the thing. It's the, it's the attention. It's the headlight. It's the bright lights that we put on the thing. And God said, I'm telling you, you can't look at that. Otherwise, you will become consumed with it. What's the solution? Here's the solution. The solution is we have to step away from the natural and tap into the supernatural. We have to step away from the natural and step into and step toward the supernatural. What do I mean by that? Okay, God's having this conversation with Abraham. And he's saying, I'm going to give you a child. And he says, he's looking inside of his tent. And you read the story, we know he's inside the tent. He's, he's, he's there with you know, his laughing wife. She's laughing at the plan. That, that's really helpful. And then he's like, I have no children. I'm looking in a reflecting glass. I know how old I am. I have my AARP card. I, they remind me how old I am. I'm not, uh, now I'm just seeing this guy who's my servant. That's all I can see. And God said, you've got to step away from all of that. And watch what he does. Genesis chapter 15, verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Abraham. This man, the only one you can see right now, Eleazar, he's not going to be it. He's not going to be your heir. But a son, Abraham. And he doesn't stop there. A son from your own body. It's going to be a miracle. A son from your own body, coming from your own body, 
He'll be it. He'll be your heir. Now watch what he did. Verse 5. He took him outside. It's a key. Why didn't God just come on in the tent? God can, God can come in the tent. Jesus walked through walls, came in a room. God could have come in. Why did he say, hey, let me come into your clutter. Let me come into the things that you can't see. No, he said, I need you to step outside. So he took him outside. He said, look up at the heavens and count the stars. Indeed, if you can count them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. What do I mean? Listen, whatever that thing that is bogging you down and drawing you in like a vortex, God says, you've got to step away from it. You're spending too much time looking at the natural. You're You're looking at the problems. You're looking at the issues. You're looking at the potential failures. You're looking at all that. I'm asking you, God would say, to step out of that tent. I lead a very cluttered life. Look at my desk. I should bring a picture of my desk. I'm not a neat freak. You would see it in a second. (laughs) I have layers and layers on my desk. I rarely dream in my office. There's too much. There are too many problems. There's too many conflicts. There are too many budget sheets. There are too many things that are just calling. There are too many people in the inbox. Too many people angry on Facebook. There are too many blah, blah, blah. There's all that, and there's no way that I'm going to dream and see farther than I need to see that God is calling us to as a church. God says to me frequently, step out of the tent. And so I'll take a walk. I'll go to the celery fields. But more than all that, I get on my knees. I spend time. I'm an early riser. It's when I'm away from all the clutter outside the tent of my environment that I see the furthest. It's when I'm on my knees. It's when we're on our knees together when we begin to see the the long distance of God. Listen, you'll never see the forest when you're in the middle of the trees. So the first dream buster is that, is that blinding nature of the natural. And the solution is you step away. Here's the second thing. I'm sure you'll relate. It's the negative influence of others that can kill a dream in a New York second. You ever been there? That ain't going to work. Well, yeah, but what color is it going to be? I don't know what color it's going to be. I'm dreaming. I'm just thinking big. I'm thinking concept. You ever heard the story of, um, wasn't it Fulton that created the steamship, that invented the steamship? Do you hear the story like there were people on the, you know, naysayers on the banks of the river, and they're yelling, it's never going to start. The steamboat started rolling. You know what they started yelling? It's never going to stop. That's what naysayers do. They got to find something, man. Naysayers will kill it just by what they say. We looked at it last week. Nehemiah is trying to build a dream. He's not building a wall. He's building a dream. You got Sam Ballad and Tobias like just constantly pestering. You can't do this. You can't blah, 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 blah. You remember the Israelites, they were given a dream, a land flowing of milk and honey. They send they 12 spies in. 10 of them come back. That's the vast majority, folks. Ten of them come back and just freak everybody out. Oh, we're going to like insects to these guys. They're going to squash us, blah, blah, blah. We can't go. We can't go. We can't go. And it infiltrated the entire community and became contagious with you can't do it. Quite frankly, I can't hang with people that tell me I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't hang with them. Like, I love you and Jesus, get away from me. 
You remember Joseph in the Old Testament? God had given him a dream, not for him to become great, but just like, again, like Scott and Chris's story this morning, God was doing something. In fact, that's what this, the story that Scott quoted from, that what they meant for bad, God used for good. And so God gave Joseph a dream because, see, what no one knew was that there was a horrible famine coming down the line. And so he says, I'm going to use you. And he gave him a dream, and he shared the dream with his brothers. And you would think his brothers were like, hey, wow, that's so cool. But because they didn't have you know, a penthouse in the dream, they didn't have a CEO position in the dream, that they were lessened by the dream, they were intimidated by the dream, they got, they got uptight about it. They couldn't celebrate that God was anointing someone else. They couldn't celebrate the fact that God was giving someone else a dream. And so he shared the dream, and of course, they got ticked off. Watch this, Genesis chapter 37, verse 19. Here's what they said. Here comes Joseph down the street. Well, here comes that dreamer. Big idea guy. Thanks a lot. Happy Brother's Day. And in verse 20, come on, let's kill him. Let's throw him into one of those cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then let's see what comes of his dreams. There's not an American sitting in this room right now that's not frustrated with Washington. We're like, no matter who the president is, by the way, it's not a political statement. No matter who the president is, like, can we get over the secondary arguments and quit fighting with each other and move our country forward, right? There's that frustration that we all face. And it's much easier outside because we're not in the midst of it. If we were in the midst of it, we'd probably just like them, get caught up and you can't, like a magnet, you can't get away from it. You can't get away when somebody calls you something and then they got to call them back and blah, 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 and blah, 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 blah. And you're like, you got to elevate yourself above that. But it's not just the words that people can say, like you, know, you can never make it. You know, the first, the first guy I took through discipleship, he's no longer in our church. He moved to a different place. In the... We went through the first, uh, we have labs for every, every step along the way. And the first lab is we begin to talk about family. And uh, he said, I was the eighth of eight children. And my father, every day in my life, looked me in the eyes and said, you're a loser and you're a quitter. It killed him. There was so much to fight for and fight through. It killed him. See, that's obvious. But there's another, there's another side of, of negative influence I think is more subtle than open words, and it's behavior. Christians are they replicate behavior. They, if somebody else takes it from fifth gear and takes it down to fourth gear and makes it easier, we just kind of gravitate toward that. Well, if they're, they're making it lighter, then I'll make it lighter. It goes the other way, too. When, when you're around people that are pushing the edge, man, you tend to push the edge. I'm, and many of you know I'm a back, my, uh, my background is music. And it, there's, there's a phenomenon that when you play with a great musician, you're sitting there playing and they, I have never played this good in my life. When you're, when you're pressing iron with somebody in the gym and they're pressing five more and they say, come on, you can press it. And like you, you're like, God, I didn't know I could do that. On the other end, if you say, hey, you know what, let's just take a light today. Yeah, let's take a light. Hey, I brought a couple donuts to the gym. Yeah, let's share them. Let's eat them, man. Right? <laughs> it doesn't take a lot to influence you. Heck yeah, is that chocolate one? I'll take it. Yeah, whatever. It's the nature of us, right? 
I'm going to throw out a stinging comment here. And I want you to know before I throw it out, I absolutely love the church. And I love uh, pastors and I love leaders. I've given my life to encourage them. But when we look at the landscape of, of Christianity in America, I want to make this statement. The apathy that we find in the American Christian culture is the fuel for the apathy in the church culture in America. I'm going to say that again. The apathy that we find in American church uh, culture in, Amer uh, US, uh, in the U.S. is the actual fuel that just keeps fueling it. In other words, we make it lighter, then everybody makes it lighter. It becomes the norm, does it not? We make it lighter, we make it lighter, we make it lighter, we make it lighter. We get further and further away from the Scripture because everybody's doing it. And then what happens, uh, whether it's a business, a country, uh, in this case, church culture, this is, the, this is the thing where we have to say, make sure we understand what we're, we're looking at because that influence is so subtle that all of a sudden, churches lose their dreams. Churches don't believe anymore that they can impact the world because who's doing that anymore? Do you remember after the resurrection? Which is, you know, we, we talk about the resurrection so much, I'm, I'm afraid with these stunning realities that they kind of ebb away. And, and, but, you know, if, if, if my friend Brian here uh, died and we did, we did his funeral on Friday and you saw him in Publix next Thursday, would that be stunning for you at all? <laughs> we forget the stunning reality of these guys, like the disciples who saw Christ after they saw him suffered and buried in a hole. And they're like, wow, there he is. After that that stunning intersection, Peter, who, as I read the Gospels, was one of the more influential disciples amongst the others. He, he, he's had it. In John chapter 21, verse 3, the last chapter of the four Gospels, Peter makes this comment, I'm going out to fish. Now, this is not like Clay Barnett would say, I'm going out to fish. Our worship pastor, he loves the fish. See, for Clay, it's a hobby. Clay said, hey, I'm going to go out to fish. I don't think Peter said it that way. See, this was his profession. Here's how I think Peter said it. He looked around at the natural. He heard the naysayers that killed the Lord. And where is he now? And I think he said it like this. I'm going to go out to fish. I'm, I'm not going to be part of that dream anymore. See, this was a profession. I'm going back. I've given my life for this, but pff, forget it. Now watch what happens. Now watch what happens. He says, I'm going to go out to fish. Simon Peter told the other guys, his other friends, you know what they said? We'll go with you. And my friends, the dream almost died that day. I wonder who it is that you're looking at. Who's your model? Is it someone who's just dreaming bald for God? Is it someone who's like, ah, man, I'm pushing the edge? I'm telling you, I don't say it just because I'm a pastor and I preach. I'm saying it because I'm a follower of Christ. 
And I want our church to make an impact in this world. And I personally want to make an impact on this world. It's why I constantly, constantly read the stories of the men and women from the 1800s. Those missionaries who gave it all, who would be deemed as radical and fanatical today, who lost spouses and children on the mission field. We'd say, you're out of your mind. What are you doing out there? Back then, it was admired. I keep my eyes on people like that, and they keep me in the game, and they keep the dream going that men and women can be used of God to impact the world around them. Be careful of who you watch. Be careful who who you're looking for. There is a there is a principle that we find in Proverbs. We're a lot of principles in Proverbs. Principle in Proverbs 13, verse 20. He who walks with the wise grows wise. But he who but a companion of fools suffers harm. What's the solution? Hang out with bold dreamers for God. They're contagious. Just like the negative is contagious, the apathetic is contagious. It'll draw you in more than you all. You know, you'll be eating donuts at the gym quicker than you imagine because you're hanging out with donut eaters at the gym. I've actually never seen a donut eater at a gym, by the way. <laughs> but you hang out with bold people. People are putting it out there. People are like, man, let's change it. Let's change the world. And it will become contagious. I would also say keep your eyes and your mind in the word of God. The, the book of Samuel it begins by saying the word of God was rare that day and, and those days, and there was no vision. There was no dreaming. There was no imagination of God for God. When you read God's word and you see what he does and see who he is, you think, yeah, he can do something. You close the book, you close the dream. You close the book, you close the dream. Here's the final thing. Not only do we have to overcome the blinding nature of the natural, what we can see. Not only do we have to, to step away from that, and, but watch who we're looking at, watch who we're listening to. But here's, here's the, the third and final challenge for today. We have to overcome what I call a bonsai version of God. A bonsai version of God. You know, a bonsai tree. Uh, if you go to Selby Gardens, they've got some amazing bonsai trees. I, I am fascinated. I do, I, it, man, I, I kill everything I grow. So I, I, I'm fascinated by, by the bonsai trees, these trees that should be enormous, like an oak tree, and then you got this little bonsai version. And it looks like the, it looks like the full version, but it's just miniaturized, see? And too often when it comes to dreaming, we miniaturize, we bonsai. God, instead of saying, man, God can do it, we say, ah, I don't know. And then we, we take God down to a size that is far below who he really is. So Abraham's having this conversation with God and saying, look, I have no heir, no children. I guess it's that guy. And God said, no, it's not. And then he asks him a question, Genesis 18, verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? He didn't say, is anything hard? Is anything too hard? It's the simple words in the Bible that mean a lot. T-O-O. Is anything too hard for the Lord? He said, I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a child. 
How will you know it's me coming? See, I'm going to be the guy that's carrying a light, a little light blue bag, you know, with a little tissue paper coming out of it. I'll be that guy showing up to the wedding shower, carrying a little present, a little rattler. That'll be me. You know why? Because it's going to happen. Because you've thought it's too hard for God. We have a, an expert in Hebrew that comes to our first service. I'm like, can you talk to me before the first service instead of after the first service? He said, hey, I wanted to remind you, I've done the, the, you know, the name change, uh, Abram to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah, that God included an H. So when you say it in both of their names, Abraham is how you would say it, and Sarah, it requires the H. He said, I want to remind you. He was right over there. He said, I want to remind you the first being came a living soul. Adam became a living soul because God, he breathed in them the breath of life. You see, the only reason that Abraham and Sarah had a, had a baby is that God breathed into them. It was not too hard for God. So Moses is having this conversation about uh, meat produce. You know, he's in, the, he's in the meat produce section of the grocery store, having this conversation with God. How am I going to feed all these people? And God says, answers him in, Je- in Numbers chapter 11, verse 23. The Lord answered Moses. Again, same word. Is the Lord's arm too short? Not just short. Is the Lord's arm too short? The implication is, of course it's not, but the implication is also, yes, it is in your mind. You have made the arm of the Lord a bonsai version, Moses. You have made the task and the capacity of the Lord a bonsai version, Abraham. And so he says, is the arm of the Lord too short? You will now see whether or not what I say will come true for you. God says, you want some meat? I'm going to put Sam's Club on steroids. Watch what happens. I'm going to send quail. If you read the story, you guys want some meat? We're going to go quail. You notice he didn't send chicken nuggets. You know, and you notice McDonald's doesn't have a McQuail sandwich. McQuail is a... Uh, McQuail. <laughs> Quail. <laughs> I was going to say McGod, but I don't know if he'd think that's funny. God sent McQuail. <laughs> Maybe it was McQuail. Quail nuggets. <laughs> quail biscuit. Here we go. God sent so much quail that day. You want to know how much quail he sent? <laughs> of course you do. How much quail did he send? I want to frame it again from a man who was God's top leader, had miniaturized the creator of this universe, saying, God, what are we going to do? I'm looking at the cattle. I'm listening to the naysayers. I'm imagining the fish, and that's not enough. And God says, I'm about to blow your mind. I'm about to expand the size of who I am in your imagination. And he sent quail after quail after quail after quail. And when you do the math, if you look at the square mileage of Sarasota County, it's roughly 700 square miles. Every inch of Sarasota County, three foot deep. That's Sam's Club on steroids. 700 square miles, 
three foot deep of quail. How many quail is that? Try this one on. A hundred and five million. A hundred and five million. You see, it reminds me of this truth that Mark Batterson penned. By definition, a God-ordained dream always will be beyond your resources, always, and beyond your ability. Your job is not to crunch numbers and audit the will of God. If God says go to the ends of the earth, God will make a way to go to the ends of the earth. If God says invigorate Christianity in the U.S., then God will uh, give us the capacity to invigorate Christianity in the U.S. I look at the size of our church, which were actually larger than 85% of churches in America. But I look at the size of our church and say, how in the world, God, could we impact churches in the U.S. and around the world? How can we do that? And yet it is stunning. It is stunning what God is already doing, not only in these four walls, but in countries around the world and states around, the, uh, around this country, it is stunning what God is doing. You want to know why? Because we've decided not to crunch numbers and audit the will of God. From day one, there have been people like, you know, we just, Scott talked about uh, exchange, our one-to-one discipleship track. There are some people that said, it never work. I met with a pastor of a, the, uh, one of the largest mega churches in the country. He said, it never work. It's too slow. You can't do it. We got to move people fast, 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 fast. It'll never work. And when I tell you somebody says that to me, I'm like, I'm ramming it from fifth gear to tenth gear. Don't ever say to me it doesn't, it will never work, man. You know, I will just run in the opposite direction and put full throttle. So don't ever say, you know, don't jump off a cliff. It'll never work because I'll kill myself the next day. <laughs> it'll never work. We just finished the first phase of an, a, a, a mobile app. You know, it's ex- deeply expensive. And so someone said, you'll never work. You'll never afford it. God has supplied every single need. Now we're going to the next phase. It's a huge expense. Where's it coming from? I'll tell you where it's coming from. It's coming from God. And God makes things happen. And I'm telling you, we have never crunched the, 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 the I'm worried about, and I've never, as a pastor of this church, laid awake at night and wondered where our next dollar is coming from because from day one, we've never been one penny in debt. That's very rare. Why? Because I'm a financial genius? Of course not. Because God is larger than we can imagine. What is that thing that you're looking at right now, that you say, it's impossible. Nothing is, too, is impossible for God. Nothing is impossible for God. Watch, I, I want to frame this as we close today in our key verse in this whole conversation. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to God, who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask, here it is, or imagine, because it is according to his power, not our craftiness, not our design, not our skills, not our talents, not our intellect, but according to his power that is at work within us. So for that reason, it is only going to be to him that we'll have the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, including ours forever and ever. Amen. It is the word of God. And so as I look at God, I have to say, I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry, God. 
My understanding of you is far too small. How about you? Father, thank you for allowing us to be in partnership with you on this earth. And we realize, God, that God-sized dreams do come with obstacles, whether they're personal dreams, God, whether they're God dreams, whether they are dreams of a collective body like a church. We understand that they will be met with hurdles and obstacles. Today, God, you remind us from your word what to do with those obstacles, to step outside the tent of clutter, to keep our ears and eyes in the right direction, and to expand, God, our understanding and our, our perception, God, of who you are. Father, you are larger than the, than the most vivid imagination than we can come up with as human beings. You are stronger, you are more able, you are, are, are uh, more compassionate than we can ever dream of, God. So Father, would you in our lives, would you just refuse in our lives to give up? Refuse in our lives, help us to refuse in our lives to miniaturize you into a bond-sized depiction of reality. As we began this, this time together with worship, God, we end. May we never lose our wonder, God. Life tries to rob us of that, the clutter and the busyness, and it tries to rob us, God, of the wonder of who you are. You call us to do great things. May we never lose our wonder. You call us to walk with other people. May we never lose our wonder of what you could do, not what we can do. And Father, when that happens, there's nothing else we can do but to give you credit. May we never lose the wonder, God, of giving you glory and credit and attention and worship. We pray this for Christ and his kingdom. Amen. Amen. Amen.